Tamara Levy, I'm really delighted to welcome her here today. As a church, we've been working with her now for six years, sending clothing collections. Um, she's a very inspiring lady, and I'm sure she will do the same for you today. So, Tamara Levy. Yeah, you need that. Oh, just one sec. <laughs> so much for inviting me here today. It's a real pleasure and privilege to be able to come and share a little bit with you about our work and our vision. Um, and I just want to thank Melanie and Chris and all of the people here at this church, um, because I know you've been part of this journey for a number of years now, and it's really a real privilege to know you. You two are a very inspiring ladies, so thank you. Um, I just wanted to start, actually, by just reading a passage from Isaiah, because this, for me, is really what underpins everything that we are about. It's from Isaiah 61, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins, they shall raise up the former devastations, and they shall repair the ruined cities 
the devastations of many generations. I realise today that there are actually a few people here who are from Syria, so I do apologise about having to show you things that you're probably really keen to try and forget. I guess the talks that I do here in the UK really are aimed at trying to help our people here in England understand a little bit more about what you've been through, but what your families have been through, um, and what they're still going through now, because although fighting in many areas has calmed, there are still really an enormous number of problems there on the ground, as I'm sure you're probably still aware. So really, I think what I wanted to do is just share with you a little bit about how we, how, how we all started with this, and how it's grown, and um, some of the things that we've experienced along the way. Maybe this isn't the best environment to share some of the stories of the people that I've met. We'll, we'll see how it goes. So this started really properly um, nearly six years ago. I'm a mum of two young children, and after having my second child, I became aware of some of the things that were going on in Syria. I'd heard there were problems. I really didn't know an awful lot about it at that time. And it came to the news that there were children in refugee camps um, who were wearing flip-flops in the snow. And, you know, as a mother of two young children, I really wondered how it was possible in this world when we have so much. How is it possible that those children should have to live in a tent in the snow? without something as basic as shoes. And I started to wonder, what is it like for those women? What is it like for their mothers raising those children in that kind of environment? I mean, it's bad enough having to live in a tent in the snow, but if you cannot even put shoes on your children's feet, then do you dare even to hope for anything? You know, do you dare to hope that your children might have a future, that they might be able to actually go to school, have an education, train in some kind of profession, or is that just beyond anything that you actually dare to hope for? You know, I looked around me and I saw a nice house with double glazing, central heating. We have more food than we could possibly eat. You know, and I just thought, well, I'm a Christian and Jesus is very clear with us about how we should live our lives. You know, the teachings of Jesus are very, very clear. John the Baptist taught beforehand that if you have two coats, then you've got enough to share one with someone who doesn't have one. I found that quite humbling, actually, because I think here in the UK, probably many of us have two coats, maybe even more, maybe even one that goes with each outfit, you know, a red one for this outfit, a brown one for that outfit. You know, and I started to think, well, you know, he says if you've got two, you've got enough to share. And I felt really humbled because I thought, well, I've got this big pile of clothes here, which I've been saving for my sister's baby. And clearly, those people really need them, but how on earth do you go about getting clothes to a refugee camp in the Middle East. And at that time, I had no idea. Um, I was given a number. I, I started praying, actually, and saying to God, you know, I'm, I'm willing to share. I'm willing to share, and I want to share, but how? I don't know how to go about it. And then a couple of days later, um, you know, after I'd said to him, would you show me? Show me what I need to do. Um, a couple of days later, my mum showed me a blanket that she had been knitting, and she said, you know, this is for the Syrian refugee children. Um, and I said, well, that's great. I need to know where you're sending it because um, I, I've got a lot of stuff that I want to share. Um, 
So anyway, I was given the name and address of a woman and she said that she and her family were taking these things out um, to, to Syrian children and um, I wrapped up all these packages. She, she told me where to send them and I, I said, you know, I think as a nation we ought to be able to do more than just a few packages of clothes. Um, you know, what happens, you know, could, could we fill a lorry or container with aid? And she said, look, you, you could, but we just couldn't deal with it. It's, it's too complicated, it's too big, there are tax issues, that kind of thing. Um, so I felt rather frustrated, actually, and I started praying again, saying to God, you know, how do I go about doing this? How is it possible um, for me to get these things from here to those people there who need them? Um, I just felt he answered me very clearly. He said, start collecting. Um, but personally, I'm someone who likes to have all the details planned out. I like to know how it's getting there, who's paying for it, where it's going, that kind of thing. Um, and... In those early days, I just I didn't I didn't want to step out in faith. I didn't want to just start collecting without knowing the details. So I left it. And a few months later, um, it came back to me. It was weighing heavily on my heart, and I just thought, how can I continue to enjoy my life here while they're living like that? You know, that's it's not okay, is it? You know, is that the world that I'm going to accept living in? You know, I can't accept. I couldn't accept that if that were my children. So anyway. Um, I started praying again. I started ringing around charities working in Syria, and they all said, no, 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 we don't do that kind of thing. Um, and I felt frustrated, so I asked God once again, you know, what do I need to do to get this stuff to these people? Um, once again, I think he, I felt he said to me, start collecting. Um, and again, I, I just never really got off the ground with it. Um, and then a few more months passed by, and the summer of 2014 came, and this was when ISIS were going across Iraq, slaughtering, you know, doing very similar things that they've been doing in Syria, slaughtering whole families. And I remember one day seeing a photograph of a baby that had been beheaded by ISIS. And, you know, that baby was younger than my youngest son. And I remember weeping and saying to God, you know, I've got nothing to give. I'm a stay-at-home mum. I don't have any income of my own. Um... I've got, I've got two little children. I'm here in the UK. What can I do? I felt as if I had absolutely nothing to offer and absolutely nothing to give. But I said to him, Lord, if there's anything I can do, anything at all, and I don't care what it is or what it costs me or what it takes from me, if there's anything at all I can do to help these people, then just show me. I'll do it. I will do whatever it takes. And at that moment, he said, start collecting. And sometimes I feel like I'm a little bit slow to catch on with these kind of things, but um, it had taken him eight months to get through to me. It was August at the time, and people were dying up in the Sinjar Mountains of dehydration and exposure, but I felt he just made me this promise at that moment. He made me a promise, and he, he without words, as only God can, but he spoke directly to my heart, and he said, Samara, if you're willing to just trust me, step out in faith, Start collecting. That's your show of stepping out in faith. I want you to step out in faith and trust me and start collecting these clothes. And if you're willing to do that, I'll provide everything that you need along the way. I'll open all the right doors at all the right times and provide everything that you need to make this happen. So I started out without having a clue um, what I was doing or how it was all getting there, but praying at every step of the process. And at every step of the process, God has showed me who to work with, where, where to where to go, what to do, and it's been a really remarkable journey. Um, it took a long time, actually, to find a route into Syria. That was the place that had really been on my heart. It was, took a long time to find a trustworthy route into Syria, and I know that if you're here from Syria, you will understand the complications of sending aid into Syria. Um, so anyway, it's been a really interesting journey, but... Um, 
I just want to tell you a story from that first appeal that we did. Um, we started collecting these clothes, these shoes. It was very much winter that was on my heart. This first, um, Laurie was going to Iraq. Um, and I'd started collecting. I'd set these timescales. I'd set six weeks for collecting all the clothes and shoes and blankets and bedding, and then two weeks at the end for sorting it and packing it. I knew the date I wanted to send it, um, and I knew that I had to raise six and a half thousand pounds to pay for this lorry to get to drive it all the way to into um, the Kurdistan region of Iraq, which is where most of the um, displaced people were. And um, I'd, I'd started collecting. I'd packaged up everything I had and I'd moved it into this storage unit that we've got. And we were donated just for that appeal, actually. It was a real miracle even that we were given that. But I put the boxes over there um, and then I had a couple of other bags there. These lorries, by the way, they carry 90 cubic metres um, of whatever you decide to fill them with. And I realised four weeks into my appeal, with just two weeks until my deadline, I had somewhere between one and two cubic metres and I needed 90, and I had just two weeks left to collect the other 88. Clearly, it just was not going to happen. It was impossible. Um, and I just remember feeling utterly mortified. I told every single person that I knew, that I'd ever known, that I was in contact with on Facebook, that I knew through church, through everything, through the school. I told everyone that I was doing this. And I felt really mortified to think that I couldn't even fill a lorry that was a, a third of the size, let alone this full 90 cubic meter lorry. Um, and I just remember standing there and thinking, gosh, this has got to happen. God made me a promise. You know, he doesn't break his promises, but how is this going to happen? And I remember standing there and literally putting my hand on the box and saying, Lord, if you can feed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread, then Lord, would you just fill this room? Would you just send a flood of clothes? You know, just overwhelm us with clothes. I just, I want to see these people with something this winter. They're living under bridges. They're living in car parks. Winter's coming. They need this stuff. And you know what happened in that two weeks was nothing short of a miracle. This stuff came flooding into my house, to the storage unit. I had strangers turning up at the door to come and help sort and pack these clothes. I, um, I remember one particular day when um, my mother was there helping to look after my son because I was running around a bit like a headless chicken trying to organise everything. And um, I remember one day she looked out of the window and her face just dropped and she said, Samara, look! There was this big transit van that had just turned up and we were literally floor to ceiling with boxes and bags and there was nowhere to sit. And um, I looked out and I, said, I saw this big transit van and my mum said, tell them to go away, Samara. There's no space to put anything anymore. And I just remember thinking, gosh, isn't God good? He's answered my prayer. And you know, we actually managed to send that two and a half weeks early. We'd raised an extra thousand pounds um, and we had a whole room full of stuff left over at the end. And bearing in mind that it was impossible for me personally actually to fill that first lorry, since then we sent 110 lorries and containers of aid, we've sent 11 ambulances to Syria, we've funded and provided a number of medical facilities in Syria during the course of the conflict in, in a handful of places, and now we have a vision to... Well, we're actually designing now um, a bigger hospital, a permanent hospital. So much has been destroyed... Um, you know, the, the piece of land has been bought, planning permission has been gained. We don't have funding to do all of it, so we're just starting off with about two and a half thousand square metres. Um, it's in an area where really um, a lot has been destroyed around this city. Um, and so it, it really is desperately needed. Um, you know, I've, I've visited this area a number of times now. 
Um, over the last few years, I've spent the equivalent of about two and a half months out in Syria in various cities, in various places um, that we've been working in Damascus, Aleppo, Deir ez um, Homs, Hama. Um, yeah, it's been... It's been a real eye-opener. Um, you know, you can see these pictures um, and you can see these videos and it's like something fictional until you actually stand there in the middle of it. And, you know, I've tried to describe to people here that, you know, seeing it on a photograph is one thing, but walking through these streets is a whole different ballgame. You know, you walk through these streets and... They're towering. The buildings, or what's left of them, are towering on either side of you, and you can walk through street after street after street and not see a single building that is intact in some of the areas that have been most, most affected by this. Um, and it, it, it really is, you know, and yet what you will find is that in those areas where so much has been destroyed, there are people still living there. There are people still living in those buildings that are destroyed, you know, you, you'll, be, you'll be looking at a building thinking, oh my goodness, maybe I should take a photo of that so I can show people back home. And then all of a sudden you'll realise that someone's just walked past the inside of that window and then when you look more closely you see like a string of garlic uh, drying or you see washing hung out of the window and you realise that actually these people don't have anywhere else to go. That's, that's, that's what they've got. And they consider themselves actually to be some of the luckier ones because some part of their home is still intact. It's not like that for everyone. There are a lot of people living in, in, in other places. The war has impacted everyone on every level in Syria. There's no way of escaping it. Even the people who are well off are affected by it in one way or another. Um, you know, whether it's through having relatives who've been conscripted to the army or, um, or they themselves having been conscripted to the army. And, you know, it's... And then there are people living in the other areas where... Um, where it's just been like a kind of living hell on earth. Um, so, you know, the, the needs continue there. Um, one of the stories that um, I also like to share with people, the very, first, um, the very first field hospital that we opened in Syria, it was by our standards really very, very primitive, but in this area, it was an area that had been under the control of ISIS, um, and then ISIS were fought out of the city, and there were still about a thousand families living in this area. Um, and then there were the families that were returning to this area um, after ISIS were no longer there. Um, but in this place, there wasn't a functional hospital still working. And it was a couple of hours drive, realistically, to the nearest functional hospital. Um, so we just set up a very, very, very basic, very primitive service. You know, it had an operating room, um, and you know, it could just provide free emergency care to the people in that area. Um, and we were working there for about eight or nine months. And towards the end of that time, um, I'd planned my, my husband had planned a holiday for us as a family, and we'd. We'd gone away, and I thought, you know, I've been working really quite flat out on this the last couple of years. You know, I should spend a bit of time with my family, give them a little bit of quality time. And um, I arrived there on holiday with this nice vision of not spending all the time on my phone and, and not dealing with all of these, these things. It didn't really work out that way. Um, as soon as I got off the aeroplane and switched on my phone, I had a message from our doctor in Syria saying, look, please, could you just ask our prayers um, to pray for the team working in this area because, you know, ISIS have started attacking the area again and um, they're dealing with a lot of injuries. 
So this was something fairly big, and obviously, you know, we're talking life and death here. So, yeah, I started asking our prayer group to pray. The next morning, I was told that some of the entities and businesses working in that area were evacuating their premises. Um, And, you know, another medical facility in the general area had also been evacuated that morning. And I said to our doctor, look, what what is the situation? Are the team safe there? Do do they need to be evacuated out? And and just to explain a little bit more about, you know, of, of course, there's a degree of responsibility no matter what, but particularly in this situation, because it was a difficult area and, you know, it had seen a lot of trouble and it wasn't a place where it was easy to find doctors and nurses with the right skills and experience to staff this service. So they were driven in from a nearby area it took a couple of hours but they had to go across a very you know dangerous road that was regularly targeted by snipers um and you know they they were taken there they would stay there for a week and then they would be driven out again and a new team would be driven in so you know it wasn't therefore so intense it was quite an intense area to work um so there was a real sense of responsibility for these people. And I was saying, you know, did, are, they, are they okay? Are they safe? Do they, do they need to be moved out? Can they continue there? Or, you know, are we, are we putting them at risk by, by leaving them there? And he said, I just, I just don't know. He said, it's really difficult because half of the team are actually quite scared and they, they want to leave. And the other half of the team are adamant that they won't leave because if they do, there's no one left to care for anyone who's injured, you know. And there, there are families living in this area. So we faced this really difficult decision and um, neither of us actually knew what to do because it seemed implausible really that ISIS should be able to retake this area. You know, it it had, you know, military protecting the area. So it it seemed unlikely that they should be able, um, you know, to to go in. Anyway... um, that morning, as the morning went on, I just felt less and less comfortable and I felt this bigger and bigger burden on my heart. And I just felt that God was saying, that his Holy Spirit was saying to me, just come away and pray and just, just come and pray. And so I left my family our first day on the holiday after promising my husband that we would be spending some good quality time together. He knew the situation and I said to him, I'm really sorry, but you know, um, I just need to be alone right now. Um, so he said, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> bless him he's put up with a lot over the last few years from me in doing this work but um I went to our little hotel room on my own and I really didn't know what to do you know only God could know the situation that was coming there were rumors that ISIS would retake the area but no one really knew what the situation was and I just remember having my bible in my hands and saying to God you know none of us can see what's coming we don't know what the situation is we don't know whether it's going to be okay you know tomorrow or the next day and we don't know whether ISIS can retake this area we don't know whether the team are safe there but Lord you can see you can see everything so would you just show us now something that has some kind of meaning for us in this situation some something which has some kind of symbolic meaning for me would you just show me something now that will guide us in what we need to do and I closed my eyes and I took my Bible in my hands and I, I wanted to make sure it didn't open at one place or another that maybe had been opened before so many times. And, and I just closed my eyes and ruffled the pages and then I just opened it randomly. And the place it opened was at 2 Kings 25. And this is the passage which describes how the Babylonians, they invade Jerusalem, 
They set fire to the temple. They kill a couple of God's holy, you know, the holy people, the religious leaders, and they carry off all the Israelites into exile. And just in the heat of that moment, it just seemed to make perfect sense to me that in that moment, the Babylonians symbolized ISIS. The temple symbolized our little field hospital. I'm sure the temple was much more beautiful than our field hospital. And Jerusalem symbolized this area that the team were working in. And in my mind, it made complete sense. I took a photograph of it and I WhatsApped it over to our doctor and I just said, look, I've just asked God for guidance. And this is the passage that he has put in front of me. And this is what I think it means. And I think the team need to leave now. And I'm just praying that they'll get out in time. And I got a message back saying, okay. And then four minutes later, I got a message back saying the team are on the road. And I started then to panic. Because as I started to process all of this information in my mind, I remembered how dangerous the road was that they needed to drive along to get to an area of safety. And I started to worry that I'd just sent that whole team to to their death. You know, if ISIS were attacking the area, then there's a really good chance that they would have people on that road, you know. So I started praying again and saying, Lord, gosh, did I, did I, did I hear you correctly? Was that really what you were telling us to do? Did, did I do the right thing? And I just felt that the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Samara, just worship, just pray. You need to pray and worship in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. There was something so important in that moment about just affirming the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I did that. I just sat there on my own in the hotel room for half an hour singing all the worship songs I could think of and just praying and reaffirming the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And after about half an hour, I felt as though something had lifted. So I called our doctor in Syria and we were talking. And to be honest, neither of us really knew what to do. The team were on the road. And then while we were talking, um, you know, I, we, we then heard that ISIS had sealed off the road so that it wasn't possible to leave this area now. Um, thank God the team were already half an hour on. Um, if they'd been half an hour behind, they wouldn't have been able to pass that place. Um, and... Then after a while, after a little while later, you know, we were told that they'd managed to reach um, the place of safety. And afterwards, I started thinking, gosh, you know, am I just really crazy? Have I just done a really totally crazy thing for no obvious reason? Um, I thought, gosh, you know, maybe it'll all be okay tomorrow, you know, and the team will go back there, ISIS will be out, and, you know, there won't be a hospital anymore because it will, without question, have been looted and all the equipment taken. And so, yeah, I was thinking, gosh, you know, did, did we do the right thing? But then a couple of hours later, I looked on the news and I saw that this area had been retaken by ISIS. And, you know, I just felt this real strong sense that, you know, I could have looked at that as a loss. I could have looked at that as a loss. You know, we lost all the equipment there. But, you know, the most important thing was that the team was safe. You know, the people were safe. You can replace all the equipment that you want in the world, but you cannot replace one human life. And we had a mixed team there. You know, we had a mixture there of of Christian and Muslim doctors working there. Um, Maybe some of those doctors might have been okay if ISIS had taken that area, but the rest of them would not have been, you know. And I felt this real strong sense that God had been with us and God had led us through this really, really difficult situation. And... Rather than feeling a sense of loss, I felt a real sense of victory that, you know, God, God was with us. 
He was with us. And when the team arrived um, at the place of safety, all of them were just thanking God because they said, we don't know how we got here. We couldn't put the lights on when we were driving. It was a cloudy night. There were no, you know, there, were, there, there, were, there was no light. There was no moonlight. You know, they saw other vehicles that had been attacked on the way, and yet they managed to get there. So over time... And over the, the course of the last few years, as things have changed in various areas, you know, there are some areas we can work in and there's some areas that we can't. Um, you know, we would love to be able to work everywhere, but we're a small organisation and we can't be everywhere. We don't have the money to be everywhere. And as those of you who are here from Syria will understand, you can't work in every part of Syria. You can work in one part or another, but not both. Um, and so... Yeah, um, it's been really interesting, but um, we've felt lately that God has been calling us to establish projects that have longevity. You know, the medical facilities that we've provided um, over time have all been very much emergency responses, um, just, you know, just trying to be an emergency response to what is going on there and now, the need there and now. But as the video quoted, um, you know, there are 13, the, the UN states that there are 13.2 million people in Syria in need of health assistance because even those hospitals that still exist, you know, they're either private and people can't afford them or the government hospitals are just really, really on their knees. Um, they're not able to provide all the services that people need. Um, so much has been lost, so much is dysfunctional, um, and it is a real struggle. People are dying from the most simple things that could be treated if the right treatment and equipment uh, and expertise was available. Um, so for us, it's about building It's about bu building hope for the future. It's not simply about just providing something for here and now, right now. It's about looking at, you know, what, what can we provide for the future? You know, there's an, an, there is so much that needs to be rebuilt in Syria. There's just so much that needs to be rebuilt of the infrastructure of people's lives of fractured communities and so really this is this is what we're about now we're um, just we're also just in the process of establishing like a for want of a better word a safe space for children when we we, we ran in Derazor for 18 months um, we just closed it a couple of months ago sadly it broke my heart to close it but we've been providing um, a it started off as a small field hospital hospital but because of issues with um long-term registrations we stopped doing surgical procedures there and have just kept it as a medical center um, but it was treating you know seeing like 3,000 patients there every month and you know it was in one of the most dis damaged areas um in Derazor really it is a really badly damaged area um, and people, even even the building itself that we were using, um, you know, it, it belonged to a mosque and it had a big blast hole in the wall. Um, it had been filled in, but on the outside you can see how the building was just peppered with bullet holes on the side as well. And the, the, the streets next to it, you know, some of the footage that you saw there, some of that was from the streets next to this. I mean, you can walk around this area and just see and feel the utter devastation. Um, one of the things that we noted is that there are a lot of orphans left behind in Syria. They've either lost one parent or both parents. Um, and in many of the communities where a father has been lost, the mother has remarried and the children have been left behind with another relative. Um, 
it's very, very difficult. Some of these children are really, um, they, they, would, they would come in on their own. The children would come in. Some of them are only seven or eight years old, and they would come in on their own with injuries that were maybe a few days old that had become infected. Um, maybe even they were suffering, you know, some kind of non-accidental injuries as well. Um, and I just felt after time, it's not enough just for us to treat their injuries and send them home. You know, we need to be able to maintain some kind of, you know, ongoing care for these children, which you can't necessarily do in a um, in a medical centre. So we established a safe space for children that these orphans could be referred to from our medical centre, um, and just provide a space where they can just be kids, play, have some food, have a bit of adult input into their lives. We're now just because we sadly had to close that. We've now just we're now just looking to buy another building, um, which will be our outreach centre. There'll be a food bank. There'll be a service for um, for children like these who we know will use the new medical centre, um, and just about giving them the opportunity where we can give some trauma counselling for those most vulnerable of children as well as working with some of the widows who are raising children on their own and working towards some kind of financial um, stability of their own. So I think we're running out of time now, um, but I'm going to be talking a little bit more in the workshop. Um, so I just want to thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you for listening. And thank you to those of you who've also supported the work that we've been doing. Um, I've written a book. It was published earlier this year about my experiences in Syria um, and in starting this work. Um, if you'd like to buy a copy, you're very welcome. All the proceeds, not a penny of the money goes into my pocket. All of the money that we raised through this book goes back into supporting our work. Um, it's 16.99, um, but if you can't afford 16.99 and you'd really like a book, then come and talk to me because we can work something out. Um, if you want to buy five or more, then I'm doing a deal so that they're only £10 each. Um, likewise, if you want to buy two or more, then they're £15 each. So um, please do come and, and grab a copy if you'd like one. Thank you so much. God bless.